Happy Halloween to all of our listeners out there. And welcome Ooh, into the... Spooky. Yeah, spooky. I forgot my mask today. <laughs> I actually was going to wear a mask on the air for the show, but sadly I forgot it. I know Chase was definitely excited to see my selection of masks. I had kind of an ogre-looking one. It was corny. $2 Perfect. Goodwill, but unfortunately I completely forgot it. I was spending a lot of time preparing for what we were going to talk about, and on that note, right, we have a ton. I have a gritty costume that I was going to wear today. What and, was it? And it, it was like, have you seen Gritty, the Flyers mascot? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I got yeah. his, I got like a wig and an orange beard, and I have some googly eyes. I was going to rock today, but I knew I'd get a little bit too hot. It gets yeah. a little bit sweaty. Yeah, here. no, it definitely does, even <laughs> on this brisk fall day. Here on Boulder. I was going to dress up as Jim Harbaugh, actually, but I didn't get the hat and the shirt in time from a friend of mine who was going to ship it to me in Ann Arbor, sadly enough. I think I could have pulled it off, though. Yeah. The Harbaugh look with the whistle. and Just need a really everything. good pair of khakis, and you're good to go. Yeah, there you go. I, I already have that, though. But anyway, too much to talk about today, pretty much. Buffs were upset by the Oregon State Beavers, 41-34. to 34. They blew uh, they were outscored in the second half, 28 to 10, 31 to three in the fourth quarter and overtime period. An emba- embarrassing loss for this program, to say the least. Chase, I mean, no other way to look on it. We'll we'll dissect that from multiple angles, and we'll also look ahead to the game against Oregon. The uh, Oregon, excuse me, Arizona. That's who Arizona played last was Oregon. But we'll look ahead to that later on in the show. We'll diagnose what happened against Oregon State. Men's basketball season tips off this week uh, with the scrimmage on Saturday. We'll get into that. And then the Broncos put up a good fight against the Kansas City Chiefs at Arrowhead Stadium. But unfortunately, they finished in second place again. I guess they could continue to massage that silver medal on their desk as they sit at three and five now. And we also have some high school football news. The news of the day on high school football front, Fairview won last week 57 to seven against Rocky Mountain High School to advance to nine and one on the season. And they're playing Denver East this Friday in the first playoff game of the Colorado football, high school football playoff. But they will be without their star quarterback, Aiden Atkinson, who suffered a thumb injury and chase you have more on that yeah huge blow uh for fairview right before the playoffs start this friday aiden atkinson will have to have thumb surgery and he will go in for surgery on monday obviously that ends his uh junior season for fairview and really it ends fairview's hopes in the playoffs yeah i I know this is kind of a demoralizing thing but at the same time the good news is he still has another year of high school. He has some time to rehab. Obviously, he won't be able to help his team for the immediate time being, but as someone who kind of talked to him a little bit recently, what's going through the kids' heads now? I know right. having to get surgery and getting injured, I believe this is the first time he's had to have surgery, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit before. Very smart, intelligent kid. Obviously, his head is in the right place. Um, he's going to end up being fine from this. He's not yeah. one of those to get get down on on these types of things obviously he's really disappointed right now yeah he's ready for he was ready for fairview to make a playoff run but um it is good that he has a senior season ahead of him and he'll be able to focus a little bit on recruiting which he's put completely on the back burner he doesn't care about any of that stuff which is good for a quarterback of his caliber and his situation yeah usually right? you you see people fall in love with the process fall in love with the attention that recruiting brings and all of that stuff 
Anakis is the complete opposite. He didn't take any visits during the season besides going to the CU game against Arizona State. And he's local, so it's a 10-minute drive. Yeah, obviously, that's really just being able to go to a college football game. It's not really taking a visit. But, um, yeah, so he'll be able to focus a little bit on recruiting, which will be interesting for him. I I wonder if he'll end up taking some visits now that he doesn't have any football to worry about or anything like that. And um, he'll be able to kind of start making a list, start deciding, because he has – quite a few offers and he really hasn't dwindled it down much so I think he'll be able to spend a little bit more time there obviously it hurts his football team but he'll be ready to go for his senior season and, and that's yeah. that's the money making season that's the season that he probably was ready to win a state championship with senior year so I don't think he'll be too worried about that yeah it's it's obviously not you know the end of the world with him especially with all the offers he has coming in but you know, it'll it'll be interesting to follow his recruitment from several different angles because he's a bolder kid, but he's obviously intelligent. He's going to want to go to a good academic university, and he's also very talented. So it'll be kind of interesting to see what he does going forward. But we also have another recruiting tidbit. Um, USC's offensive line coach was fired earlier this week. There was a key offensive lineman who is committed to USC and what what's going on in that regard we've talked about him a little bit on the show before Jason Rodriguez he's out of uh, Southern California he visited Boulder a few weeks ago um, I think it was actually for the New Hampshire game he was one of the uh, sole visitors for that game and he at the time was very committed to USC but he said it's always nice to have a plan B just in case some things happen well some things have happened O-line coach obviously gets fired um, Clay Helton now takes play calling duties. We'll see if Clay Helton can keep his job for the rest of the season. If he gets fired, I think it'll make things even more interesting. Obviously, yeah. CU isn't in a perfect place right now to be stealing recruits because you kind of have to win football games. It still could conceivably happen if he thinks this is a good environment. I mean, remember, recruiting's not just about going to the best team, right? It's about going to a place where you can start and show off your skill set and maximize your potential. So. It could it could potentially happen. Yeah, it definitely makes things a lot more interesting for him because um, he was one of USC's best recruits. He was obviously recruiting other guys for USC, that kind of stuff. USC, um, I think people are starting to get the vibe that Clay Elton might be gone because they've had, yeah. I think, three four-star recruits in the last two weeks decommit from USC. So yeah, um, the word's getting around. It, it'll be interesting to see how, how things end up there. I got another recruiting tidbit while we can. Um, Darius Robinson, he also visited a, a few weeks ago. I can't remember the exact game, but he's one of their top defensive line recruits. He was he visited Syracuse this past week. He was all set to commit to Syracuse a couple days ago after his visit. He set the time and everything, and last minute he pulled out, which makes things a little bit more interesting for CU. The word from uh, some of some of the sources is that. It, it was CU that's been pushing late and making some things interesting. So that'll come down to Colorado and Syracuse. Yeah. And I love, a, I love a good recruiting battle. Yeah, rec- recruiting is kind of like kicking in the NFL in the sense that it's unpredictable. It's funky. Weird things happen throughout the process. And it's kind of a roller coaster ride of sorts. So, I mean, anything, anything can happen. And uh, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. But anyway talking about the CU football game that happened last weekend. Uh, After that game, let me just say, 
I went home and I stared at a wall for about an hour, <laughs> just just trying to think about and process what happened. And contextually speaking, the last time I did that was um, in middle school when I found out that I didn't get into the high school that I wanted to get into, <laughs> which was five years ago now. I don't think the emotions had the same anger as a media member. I kind of try to divorce myself from that aspect of it. I think it was just a state of shock and surrealness to it that I just could not process the nature of what just happened. Yeah, trying to figure out what exactly just happened. It, it took me probably 24 hours to fully process everything, and I, and I couldn't stop thinking about it for those 24 hours. It, it just wouldn't leave my mind no matter what I did that Saturday night, No, no matter if – what college football game was on, I was still thinking about CU and there was a lot to process that how, how did that all happen? How many different things had to go wrong for CU to blow a 28 point lead? And it, it still gets me right now. Those familiar with the program said it was the second worst loss in school history. The first being the game against Kansas in 2009, where they literally had to kneel it down. It was like a miracle at Folsom, but for the Jayhawks, either mm-hmm. way, Uh, And this one was the nightmare at Folsom. This was the nightmare at Folsom. I think Uh, Colorado was up huge. Um, They were up 35 to three, I believe, after the Trayvon McMillan touchdown run. 31 to 31 three on the after the McMillan touchdown run on the very uh, first play out of the half. Then they were, like I said at the top, outscored 31 three in fourth quarter and overtime combined. 38 to 10 in the entire second half. Wait, let's let's just start with the defense because they're the one who they're the ones who gave up all those points there. They gave up 310 yards through the air and three touchdowns to Jake Luton, who had not started a game in three weeks. Offense only scored 10. I think we'll we'll get to the offense in a second. I think that was there were a lot of missed opportunities. I don't necessarily play play calling, but the defense, man, that secondary was taken out to school. I mean, what? Eudophia and Wiggly were getting burned left and right. There was a point in the game where I noticed that Jake Luton would literally just throw the ball up in the air. I mean, when, we, when Chase and I were down on the field, media members, writers from the press box are allowed to stand on the field for the last five minutes of each game before we uh, enter the press conference room in the Champion Center. I observed Isaiah Hodgins run back-to-back fade routes where he wasn't even turned around when the ball left Luton hand. He was just chucking it up because he knew he had good isolated one-on-one matchups where his receivers were going to win. So I think that's really where it starts and ends. I think the run defense did a much better job last season. They would have completely collapsed again in the second half. They did a good job neutralizing Jefferson, who, by the way, is the best running, running back in the conference, statistically speaking, and in terms of NFL potential. I just think the secondary had a really rough time, and I think that's – there's, there's a lot of finger-pointing in the situation, but I think that's the primary reason why they lost. Yeah, I think you can directly point the finger at, at the defensive backs there just because if n- just a couple of those catches didn't happen, CU probably ends up winning that game. But McIntyre said that they were rolling and the wheels just fell off. I think they were rolling, they fell asleep – and the wheels fell off while they were sleeping. Yeah, That's how bad it was. Drew Lewis said it after the game himself as they felt comfortable, and then Oregon State scored a couple times, and the next thing they knew, he turned around and looked at the scoreboard, and it read 34-all. And that was after a missed, field, missed extra point, mind you. So they kind of just snuck up on them, and it just stings, especially uh, considering the circumstances. Oregon State 
worst team in the conference, going through a rebuild as a football program right now. Hadn't won a game against a team in the Pac-12 since 2015. Hadn't, On the road. Hadn't beat an FBS team in two years. Lost to a team outside the Power Five. I mean, I could just sit here and go on all days. No matter how you want to look at it, losing to a team of Oregon State's caliber is embarrassing. Yeah, it was embarrassing. And, and it's kind of this... I, I don't know how to perfectly describe it, but Coach McIntyre, he, he's a soft guy. We can, we can kind of all be honest here. He's yeah. a nice guy. He's not one of those football guy, hard-o type of coaches. He's now, just, now, granted, I hate to interrupt you, but I think he kind of brings a little bit of a different personality when he comes and meets with the media. I think he holds accountability in-house, but he doesn't let it get outside. Right, but I think if you talk to any of the players, they're not going to tell you that they're intimidated by Coach McIntyre. Yeah, probably not. I think they're intimidated by some of their other position coaches that are willing to grill into him and that kind of stuff. And, but I think this is kind of a top-down type of thing where it starts at the top. It starts with Coach McIntyre's mentality and he he doesn't like to kill teams. He's said that before. He doesn't like to. I don't, I don't know how to say it without using a he doesn't a, a like mu- to run, a murder run, metaphor. Oh, he doesn't run, like run, to run up, up the, the score. score. There we go. And especially considering <laughs> that his former offensive coordinator Brian Lindgren was on the opposite sideline. Right. He he's said multiple times that he doesn't like to run up the score. He that's just who McIntyre is. And really, when when you get into college football, these types of things can happen. And I think there's just too much evidence that points to, yes, you have to run up the score in college football because it helps with AP voters. It helps with all all that type of stuff, college football playoff board voters. The bigger you win, the higher you can be ranked. Winning winning matters and winning big matters as well. So I I don't see why why McIntyre still thinks that he doesn't want to run up the score. I think after this game... He should look himself in the mirror and be like, maybe we should start to step on some throats. See, I understand what you're saying, and I understood what everyone who criticized him for not wanting to you know, keep his foot on the gas is saying. But I kind of disagree. I think it was more of an execution issue. Yes, they probably should have run the ball and let the clock juice a little bit more. They passed 17 times to 15 runs. I understand that. You want to kind of let the clock run out. They couldn't run the ball, though. They couldn't run the ball against Oregon State at all. Yeah, they weren't having any success. And and that's another rant that I could kind of go on. Aside from that one run by McMillan, which came right out of the break. Right. And before that run, McMillan was at like 2.1 yards per carry. And that one run jumped him to eight point something yards yeah, per carry. He, was, he wasn't getting any any separation. So so one run can kind of skew those those numbers, but they weren't running the ball well at all. So I I kind of understand them not yeah. wanting to run it in the third or fourth quarter, and they did end up passing it a lot more. But even the passing game wasn't working. Yeah, offensively they just kind of sputtered. And yeah, I don't know if that was because of conservative play calling or, or what, but but they just sputtered and. I just would have liked to see them go for it, go for it, seeing if they could put 50 or 60 points on that Oregon State yeah, team. Yeah, I, I would have too, especially with considering how weak that defense is. But let me just give you two sequences in that game that I think could have potentially been the backbreaker, at least offensively speaking. We're not, we'll, we'll talk about offense for a second. So they were driving, right? Um, they had second and five at the 11-yard line. Montez runs for a first down, slides down at the five, a holding penalty brings that play back, right? All, this comes when they're up a point. Katie Nixon makes this circus one-handed catch. Two plays later, on third down, Montez has this big run for a first down, which makes you think that they're going to score. They're up 34-33 um, at this point, I believe. 
or I think they had a little bit of a bigger lead because they ended up kicking a field goal and going up six. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Either way, you're up. Uh, you're up three at this point. Then um, Montez runs for a first down. It's you, you think they're going to get a touchdown, which puts them up two scores with four minutes to go. And Oregon State's playing well on offense, so you think if we go up two scores, we're going to put this game away. There's a holding penalty, which brings back a big run by Montez. They end up not converting the third down. You settle for a field goal. That's one opportunity where the play calling dialed up. Uh, one instance where the play calling dialed up was really good. They just didn't execute or they made a mistake. The second of which they're driving at Oregon State's 47 on a third and six. Montez hurls it down the right side. Little bit underthrown, but kind of slips off the hands of Tony Brown. That would have been a huge first down conversion that could have kept the clock rolling. And it was 31-20 at this point. So Oregon State had started to mount the comeback a little bit. And by the way, before it was 31-28 when when Montez made the run, which was holding. I just checked my notes here. But either way, those are two circumstances. And then there was another job dropped by Jay McIntyre, the drive before on a second and long. Not as costly, but still, I just think what I'm trying. The point I'm trying to prove here is that it was an execution problem, not a play calling one. I think that the play calling was fine. I thought they drew up some good plays. I just thought they didn't go out there and make something happen out of it. Yeah, and I feel like you could point to a lot of different drops in that game. There, there was just something they about the receivers. Six, they, they had listened to the statistics. They had eight drops all season. Saturday they had six. So right, yeah. and and that's just one of those. Weird things, one of those 50 reasons why they ended up losing that game. And it's just something that happens to teams. You have a team that doesn't really drop balls and then ends up dropping six in a game. And I think you could go and point to a bunch of different plays in that game that kind of lost them, which is another reason. There were just so many reasons why they lost that game. You can't just point to one, but you can go back and pick all these plays. You can pick up. All of these different things. Another one, and it's another reason why people aren't happy with Coach McIntyre, is they, I think, had a fourth and one at one point in that fourth quarter, and they ended up punting it. It, The ball was at midfield, and it might have been even a little bit less than fourth and one, fourth and inches or something like that. And they ended up punting it, and that's just a time where some fans would have liked to see them go for it and finish the game off, and it's a reason why you lose. But there were so many different reasons in that game. Yeah, I, it kind of took a perfect storm of events for that whole sequence to happen. But I think if we were going to simmer down the issue, it would come down to a secondary that struggled might, mightily, especially Trey Udofia. And, I mean, he, he had back-to-back penalties. One was a late hit out of bounds. The second was a pass interference, which put Oregon State in deep in Buffs territory and helped them mo- continue that drive. And then he was beat three separate times by Isaiah, first Isaiah Hodgins, and then Timmy, two of those were by Hodgins, the third was by Timmy Hernandez. Listen, Oregon State, in my opinion, has great receivers. I'm not, I'm not taking that away from them. I think that's one of the most underrated attributes of their team and in the Pac-12. But at the same time, this is a team that struggled a lot recently, and you need to cover better, no, no, no matter what the circumstances. There's no excuse to let a team throw for over 300 yards and three touchdowns and a half with the quarterback who's struggled throughout his career, collegiate career and hasn't played in three games. That's inexcusable. But on the offensive side of the ball, I think it was just poor execution, play after play, drive after drive. 
by the players, and then a couple, two or three questionable decisions that came from Coach Max, such as the fourth and inches that they opted not to go to. So I think it boils down to the secondary struggles and the offense's inability to execute later on and put, ultimately put the game away. Right, and the thing about the cornerbacks, the, the defensive backs, is this isn't an isolated game. It's not an isolated issue. They've had problems in a lot of different games this season where, yeah. where they just continue just got beat yeah so many different times and and it's really comes down to two guys Dante Wigley and Trey Udofia those guys just don't seem to be Pac-12 caliber type of cornerbacks right now they're, they're just guys that you can that you can see on film that you can pick on and then these teams go in and and pick on these guys when four and eight are out there if you have man on man you're going to throw it to them yeah and I think that these teams have been able to pick up on that and it's something that CU just can't figure out right now if they had Chris Miller healthy, I think it might be a little bit different, but but they just don't. They have to play either Wigley or Adofia, and neither one of them are up to par right now. Yeah, you have to start either one of them, too. And in nickel formations, it seems like they're both on the field. But speaking to that point, I think one thing that sticks out to me about watching them on tape is that they're constantly getting beat. I mean... They've kind of been lucky in the sense that CU hasn't really faced a gunslinger-type quarterback who's willing to let it loose and let their guy go win a 50-50 matchup or throw it if they don't have a ton of separation. But when, when they face off against that type of quarterback, they're going to lose a lot of matchups because they're going to throw the ball a lot. You know what I mean? They just haven't really faced a team that's been able to throw the ball a lot. And going forward, I think when you face off against a team like Washington State, who throws the ball 50 times a game, that's that's inevitably just going to hurt you. Right, and especially if Evan Worthington is out against Washington State, that, that'll that be kind of an interesting injury to watch because Worthington didn't play a single snap in that second half. No, he's and, in, he's still going through the concussion protocol. And obviously he's a, he's a big difference maker when he's out there. I think you would just tell by how well that they were able to pass, Oregon State was able to pass in that second half. Not as, not as good in, in man coverage, though, but yeah. I understand right. He, he just is a difference maker, whether it's just having his presence out on the field, directing traffic a little bit, knowing where to go, just because he's been around for so long. N- not even as much of him just being in coverage. It's just having his presence out there. It seems to make a difference for these guys, where in the second half they just looked a little bit lost out there. Um, I don't think that Worthington's going to play this week. He's been in concussion protocol all week, so it'll be interesting to see if they can get him back for Washington State because if they don't, they're going to have some serious problems against Gardner Minshew in that air raid attack. Um, I, I, can't, I can't even begin to think about it. They were ranked eighth in the country in the most recent college football playoff ranking that was released earlier today, and they come to Boulder in two weeks, and depending on how the game against Arizona, which we'll get into in a second, goes, it could, it could get real ugly real quick. It could uh, resemble the matchup against Washington last year where they were destroyed at home in Folsom Field. But that, that perfectly segues into my next point about injuries. Arguably, the best player on either side of the ball is hurt. Worthington is more of an argument, but... He's been before the season. You yeah, might have said Worthington. Yeah. I think now it's clearly Nate Landman. Now, now yeah, Landman. I would say is probably their best player. But nonetheless, he's an impact player. I think we can agree on phrasing it like that. He's out, and then you have Lavisca Chanel out. How much do you think they've missed Lavisca the past two weeks? I think they've missed him a lot. They missed him more against USC in Washington than they did against Oregon State because Oregon State's secondary has struggled a lot, and I think Katie Nixon. 
Um, the type of player is, he is, the type of routes he runs, was perfectly suited to go up against that defense. So I don't think they missed him a lot. But behind Nixon, there really was not a whole lot of production in the rec- by the receiving court. Right. And the difference between Washington and USC and Oregon State is Oregon State's a defense that you can kind of just give Visca the ball and say, go do whatever with it. And he's probably going to break quite a few tackles. And, and end up getting a ton of yards where I think against a defense like USC and Washington, you can't really just give him the ball in space and let him do his thing because those, those guys on defense are just too athletic and are going to end up shutting him down. So I do think he, he would have helped a little bit against Oregon State. I don't think he's the reason why they lost. And I also think you're right in that KD Nixon was a great matchup for them. We had talked on the radio um, last week that to watch out for KD Nixon because – uh, he had yeah. wa- watched some film with Montez on that day, and they had figured some things out on why he wasn't getting the ball as much against Washington. Ended up getting the, the ball a ton against Oregon State, and we should give him some credit for that. He had 13 catches. He had, he had an outstanding game. 13 catches, 198 yards, two touchdowns. Two I mean, touchdowns. after the game, he said in his press conference, he was a little bit hard on himself. He said that he was the reason they lost the game, which was a little far-fetched, to say the least. Yes. I mean, he had a last-second ball um, in the end zone from Montez uh, slip off his hands. To me, on the field, it looked like it was a little bit high anyway. The ball was tipped, too. I, it was tipped. I went back and I had video of it because I was taking video on the field, and I went back and you could clearly see that the ball changed direction, Yeah. which I I can't blame a wide receiver when a ball is tipped because if you're, you've ever caught a football before, you know that if it gets touched in front of you, it's a lot harder to catch. And it was high. It was, it was way over his head. Right, I mean, and Montez it, threw it about as hard as he could yeah. as well, so... All, all those combinations of things, I think, I, I'll let KD slide there. Obviously, he had almost 200 yards, so it, it's He okay. had an outstanding game. I, I, I was shocked that he said that, but I understand I think, that. I think where he's right, though, he had a quote that said, my best game turned into my worst game. Yeah, I, I, asked, him, I asked him the question that preceded that. I said, and I asked him, I said, aside from that one drop in the end zone, I didn't go into logistics, but I said, aside from that, you had a career day. What did you see in the defense that allowed you to get back on track? Unfortunately, he was so wound up and upset about what happened. He just said, it doesn't matter anything that happened uh, before that last play, which obviously is a little bit unrealistic. But, you know, you can't compl- you know, get mad at the guy. He had just come off the field from right. that moment. He was still riled up and emotional in it. But, yeah, he, after that... And- I mean, you do like to see a guy worry about the team more than himself, especially yeah. a wide receiver, because you can get those wide receivers that really just care about themselves. So it, it was good that KD only worried about the team in the postgame presser. He wasn't going to take any credit for what he had done before that. So I, I kind of like to see that, even though it's not an answer that we want as media members because it's kind of the boring answer. And it's not even really realistic, to be honest with you. (laughs) He was the reason they did so well. I mean, he was a one-man wrecking show out there. Yeah, so I think it's fine. Philip Lindsay used to do the same stuff. I remember against Arizona, which is perfect timing for that. Against Arizona last year, he ran for a stupid number, like 250 yards. Unlike 40 carries. Yeah, it, it was less than Khalil Tate, so Khalil Tate was talked about more, but he had a career game against Arizona, and he didn't want to talk about it at all either. So. Yeah, I, lo- I love to see that humility out of guys being team players and acknowledging what happened, even if it wasn't re- unrealistic. But I, th- I have to imagine they're going to try to find more ways to get the ball in KD's hands going forward, especially if Visca's out 
for an extended uh, period of time, which remains to be seen right now whether he's going to play against Wazoo. Wazoo. He hasn't really practiced this week, so and he's a game. Yeah. Don't expect him for Friday, but no, there's a I chance don't. that he could come back for this Listen, season. Listen, turf toe usually takes three weeks to recover from, and on Friday it would be a di- one day less than three weeks. So, I th- And I think the worst thing you can do is rush him back out on the field and re-aggravate that injury and have it be a problem down the line, even past this year. So I think it's a good move to play it safe with him. Right. It, it would just be nice for these other receivers to step up. As yeah. you mentioned, none of them look that good besides Katie Nixon. Jawan made a nice catch early and then kind of went, had went a, to had sleep. Had a costly drop to Yeah, had a, couple, had a couple drops, kind of went to sleep in yeah. the second half. So, And then Tony Brown obviously had a very costly drop on deep ball, another one in the fourth quarter as well. Yeah. And Jay McIntyre had an important drop as well. So you go down, you go down the line and all, all of these guys just didn't step up when they needed them to. So maybe they can figure something out and step up on Friday. Yeah. Um, but that was just a wonky game, no matter how you look at it, last Saturday, and a devastating loss. But at the same time, the Buffs are still in contention in the Pac-12 South, and they also can get, if they, if they don't win the South, they can also get to a decent bowl game. So this loss by no means was the end-all, be-all of the season. You, st- you still need to play out the last four games. I'm just wondering how you emotionally... You get past this. Obviously, upsets in college football happen. Not always where teams are favored by 24 and a half points. But, you know, they happen. Stuff transpires in a game that you don't expect. And all of a sudden, you're in a position that you didn't think you were going to be in. So, um, earlier this week, the Nate Landman told us that there was a players only meeting. Coach McIntyre said he thought that was a good thing for them to kind of... And, um, he said, Lamon said at the meeting that it wasn't guys pointing fingers or getting mad at one, one another. It was like, hey, listen, we need to pick it up. We need to get back on track. And that's a good thing to hear, in my opinion, because when, uh, when teams lose games like this, there's a lot of finger pointing. Um, there's been fights in locker rooms. I know with the Jaguars defense, that was the case a few weeks ago. And listen, these guys get bottled up. They get emotional. Things happen that they don't mean to happen. But at the same time, it's good to see this team talking about how they can improve and how they can get better rather than saying it was your fault. We lost. We don't want to talk to you. And this and that, because that can really destroy the chemistry of a team. And in my opinion, this team has excellent chemistry. And, you know, that's, that's going to be what tests them down the stretch. But how, how, do you get, how do you get over a loss like this? I mean, especially with the voices of people in the media around you and all this outside stuff, how, how do you move past this and say, that, that happened, we're, it's done, it's over, let's, let's go play Arizona on Friday? I think, I think as a football player, it's a little bit different than how we all see it. Whenever I played sports in high school, once you're in the game, once how they would describe it in between the lines for me, it was in between the boards. Yeah. Once you're there, you kind of forget about everything else. Yeah. Like, I don't think, I think once they get into that game, once they run out onto the field in Arizona, they're not going to be thinking at all about Oregon State. So I, I don't think it matters as much as we like to build it up a little bit. I do think that they were crushed and it'll linger on them for probably the rest of their lives, but they can't worry about that now. And they know that they just have to worry about the next team in front of them. And I kind of think McIntyre does a good job with that. And obviously the players only meeting helped them as well. So I think mentally they're going to be all right, but it see, I don't like to overreact 
on a weekly basis about any type of games. So, so to me, it's just like that's college football. That's what can happen to you yeah, and I, I th- each week. So. I get the vibe that that's what their opinion is in the locker room too. You know, I don't. I think I thought they were crushed in the immediate aftermath, but just talking to a few guys this week, they seem back to business and a little bit looser, which is a great thing to see. You know, and I mean, it is college football, and anything can happen on Saturday. And considering what this team has to play for and considering what's at stake for them the rest of the way in these last few games, I think that you just got to move on and keep fighting and keep playing. And that seems to be the case. I don't think they're really thinking about it as much anymore. Yeah, and I I don't think there's any reason, even for the fans, to really overreact. I know it was soul-crushing. I know (laughs) McIntyre described it well. It was a tear-your-guts-out kind of loss. It was. And, and, And I get that, but... There are just so many different things that happen on a week-to-week basis in college football. Like, try betting on it every week. You'll you'll realize that these games that they can just go any way, and it's unpredictable. I don't know if that's the best piece of advice, Chase. If we encourage too many <laughs> listeners to bet on it, we might I'm find them outside <laughs> sleeping in a sleeping bag outside our studio uh, as we walk out. So you're uh, right. It just but once you start following this kind of stuff, you realize the unpredictability about yeah, all no, of it. That's an excellent point. That, re- that really is an excellent. You never point. know what's going to happen. So I, I don't think there's any reason to overreact. Obviously, if they lose a few games straight. Whatever, say what you want, but I don't think you overreact because of one game. Yeah, no, me neither. But looking ahead to Arizona, because that's what the players are, obviously it's human nature for us to talk about it and dwell on it a little bit. But the players have looked ahead, and their flight to uh, Tucson leaves tomorrow afternoon. So that's that's the main focus. They are three-point underdogs to Arizona, meaning that this game is a little bit of a toss-up. I think it's going to be... One of those, but Arizona, I think, poses a threat to them because of how good their defense has been at home. They're ranked 18th in the country in total defense on their home turf. Um, they have some of the best playmakers in the conference, and Colin Schooler, who currently leads uh, or is second in the conference in tackles, total tackles and tackles per game. He's, he reminds me a lot of Nate Lamon, and they're kind of similar players. They both came out of the same part of California, and they had similar attributes, so I think that's an adequate comparison. So they have Schooler, and they have Tony Fields, who's uh, also one of the best young defensive players in the conference. I think that poses a threat in terms of stopping the running game, and they also have some pretty decent cornerbacks, too. So I think defensively, Arizona is going to be a tough matchup. The uh, passing game kind of sputtered against USC and in Washington, um, two road games, so I think that could potentially be the case, but I think you need to establish a little bit of a rhythm early on. That's going to be key for them, getting off to a hot start, getting a few completions, moving the chains, and then going from there. Right, and that's usually how this offense gets going. You need to get first downs, especially when they play at such a high pace that they do, even though we didn't see it that much these past few weeks, but when they're rolling, they're pay- playing at a very fast pace, and you need to consistently get first down so if they can go out there and have a few good drives to start that'll build some confidence build some momentum for the rest of the game but you're right about Arizona they're they've got really good linebackers they've got a very solid defensive line I think one of the at least in the top half of the defensive lines in the Pac-12 so they got their hands full with this Arizona team it'll be interesting to see what kind of game plan Chef puts in I think 
it's about time that we see something different with this offense. Some, yeah, it seems some pretty wrinkles. seems pretty repetitive uh, week to week. And listen, when they play a, a poor defense, everything he does works perfectly, and he looks like a genius. The bubble screens, the up tempo where they're getting up to the line in ten seconds or less. The these little jet sweeps, everything looks good when you're playing against a poor defense. But when you're playing a defense with these really talented linebackers, I don't know if it's going to work as well. Right. Chev's whole motto is get the ball in playmakers' hands in space and let them make plays, and that works. Obviously, it, it's a great way to run your offense, but the problem with it is if you try to get them in space too much, especially short of the line of scrimmage, there's some other guys on the opposite side of the ball that are going to make some plays too. And that that could be what happens this weekend with how good Arizona's offense is. So I think if they throw in some new wrinkles, I think throw the ball downfield a little bit more could help maybe get Jawan Winfrey involved a little bit more, those types of things, then they can get this offense going. But if it's just the same type of offense that we've seen the past few weeks, especially with how vanilla the run game is. It and looked, predictable. Yeah, it's, it's vanilla and predictable, that run game. It, there's no creativity with it. It, you basically know what kind of run they're going to run every single time. And with, and it doesn't seem like they run a very good zone read. Montez doesn't make the right decision a lot of the time. Sometimes that's even pre-snap. He, these guys, the run games just isn't that creative at all. So if they can't get the run game going and the passing game stays the same with these short little dink throws, then I think they sputter quite a bit. Yeah, now let's flip over. I think... I agree with everything you said, and I think it's going to be a tough matchup. But I do hope that there's a little bit more creativity. Maybe have a few pitch plays. Maybe a delayed run where Montez drops back and then hands the ball off. Maybe have him try to bounce it to the edge, which McMillan really hasn't done a whole lot this season. So maybe a couple of those types of little crinkles, if you will. And Um, the other thing is they use a lot of misdirection in the games the first few weeks and even against USC with these jet sweeps and that kind of stuff to try to get the the defense off balance. And then against Oregon State, we didn't really see in any of the jet sweeps at no. all. So it, it'll be interesting to see what kind of misdirection Chev puts into this offense because it, it didn't have any on Saturday. Absolutely not. But flipping over to the offensive side of the ball, Arizona's kind of been inconsistent because they have some playmakers, but at times, they've struggled to get the ball in their hands. They lost a tight game to UCLA, who's the, set, who's the worst team in the division. But um, they'll be getting back Khalil Tate, at quarterback, this week. Now, I know anytime I mention this game, Buffs fans want to curl up in a ball and go hide somewhere. Uh, just thinking about Tate's huge game at Folsom Field last year where he had 438 yards on the ground and four touchdowns. I mean, he ran the grass underneath him ragged last time he was here. But at the same time, he hasn't been nearly the same player he was last year. A high ankle sprain that he suffered in the game against Houston has kind of limited his mobility. And to add insult to injury, if you will, Kevin Sumlin has kind of run a very different offensive system that doesn't maximize his potential in the run game. So he's become more of a little bit of a pocket passer if you will. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, he's hurt. You don't want him moving around. He has some playmakers, but I think you're kind of losing out on him in that regard. But they do have the best running, uh, the third best running back in the conference, and they're going to face a two-headed monster of sorts in J.J. Taylor and um, Barnwell, is it? 
their their uh, backup running Brightwell. back Brightwell. Excuse me, not Barnwell. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Ben Bill Barnwell on ESPN. <laughs> Brightwell, Gary Brightwell is a bigger bell cow type of guy. He's a lot. Nate Lambin compared him earlier this week to Eno Benjamin and being hard to take down. But Taylor is a back like on. on any they've seen this year, his ability to make these jump cuts, he's small and elusive. He can squeeze through these tight holes, which is something McIntyre attributed to a little bit this week. But I think it could pretend, they could have some trouble stopping the run, despite how much they've improved this year. Yeah, there's a lot to cover there. You just covered Arizona completely. But um, I guess I'll you start. You can build off I'll, anything. I'll start with J.J. Taylor in that I think he's he could cause some serious problems for the CU team. I think he'll be the kind of the X factor in this football game. If he's able to run wild, then I th- I think CU because CU's definitely a struggle in the passing game, and if they also struggle in the run game, then they're gonna have some serious problems defensively. And you're right about JJ Taylor. He might look a little bit familiar to some Buffs fans, though. He's a little bit like Philip Lindsay in his ability yeah, to make jump cuts, and they use him like that as a receiver and those types of stuff stuff that they did when Phillip was at CU. Um, but, yeah, he, he isn't like any other running back in the Pac-12. And then on Khalil Tate, he looked pretty good this past weekend. That, he did. That was definitely his best game. I guess that's pretty obvious. They crushed Oregon, and he looked a little bit healthier, even though I didn't think he was going to get healthy that quick. He looked a lot healthier against Oregon. It'll be interesting to see how much they run him because you're right about they. I've kind of made him a pocket passer this year. Obviously, that's not his strength, and he's only thrown 54% completion percentage. So you you just don't – I don't think they've been utilizing him correctly, and it'll be kind of interesting, as we said, that we would like to see the CU offense change it up a little bit. It'll be interesting to see if Arizona has some tricks up their sleeve to try to utilize Khalil Tay properly. The big thing I'll be watching with Tate is um, if he's willing to check the ball down because where he really struggled in his early days in someone's system is he would try to force the ball downfield, kind of like Montez did early in his senior career where he'd stare down a uh, number one receiver or he'd try to hit a home run when he could settle for singles and doubles. That's how Kevin Sumlin phrased it, at least that's not um, boring coach speak. But you know what I'm saying. He just I'm, I'm just curious to see um, – Look to keep an eye on his decision making and see where he throws the ball if he's going to try to force it into tight windows. I think that's going to decide the game on Saturday, to be honest with you. I think Taylor's the X factor in the sense that he could help them run away with it, literally and figuratively. But Tate, and if the run game is struggling or if they're not you know, completely dominating like they did last year with Tate uh, in the run game, it, it'll be... It'll come down to how Khalil Tate is able to, you know, get the ball in his receiver's hands. And I think they do have some good playmakers as well. Sean Brown kind of reminds me of KD Nixon. He's small. He's, I don't think he's as explosive, but he's small and he's quick and he's elusive. Sean Poindexter and Tony Ellison are more of those average run-of-the-mill Joe type guys. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll make a couple plays, but they're not as talented, in my opinion, as Oregon State's receivers. So I think the secondary isn't in for as much of a challenge as they had later last week. I think you're right. Um, Sean Poindexter, he's leading the team in receiving yards, but he's more of a sure-handed type of guy. He isn't anything special. And with the defensive backs that CU has, they can cover the sure-handed guys. It's those guys that Khalil Tate can throw open that don't look like they're open, but if he puts it in the right spot, they will be open. 
And it doesn't look like Arizona has those type of athletes like Oregon State did with Isaiah Hodge, Hodgins in particular. Yeah. Arizona doesn't have that type of guy that they can kind of just throw the ball up to, which definitely helps in CU's favor. But if Khalil Tate's able to throw these guys open, CU will have some serious problems in the secondary. Yeah, I agree. And if they give him too much space, I'm curious to see how much he runs. If I was him, I wouldn't run a lot because, you know, the risk of re-aggravating that injury could see him sidelined for the rest of the year. And uh, the remaining few games are an opportunity to develop your skills as a passer. And over the offseason, Kevin Sumlin, I'm sure, will devise a playbook that allows him to run a little bit more, which we haven't seen because he's been hurt this year, to be quite honest. First it was the knee, now it's the ankle sprain. It kind of changes who he is as a quarterback. But anyway... Let's. It's that time of the show where we're going to give our score predictions. I'm taking Arizona. I'm sorry to all those Buffs fans out here who might be mad. I'm taking Arizona 27-20. I think they're able to get a ground game going. I think there's a couple big plays through the air that Tate is able to make. And I think their defense is able to contain CU's offense. And But I do think that they'll be able to put some points on the board. I'm going to go with... Uh 31-28 Arizona. I'm also taking Arizona as well just because they're at home. Looks like they have the advantage, especially. And Tucson, playing at Tucson Stadium is a wacky place to play. It in, is. In, in especially November. at a, a night game in Tucson is one of the most interesting games of the year. It's it's really the Pac-12 after dark type of game. It seems like every time you, you turn on a game and it's at Tucson late at night, you're going to have some wacky things going on. Um, so, yeah, 31 28. Um, I do think CU plays pretty well. If they can force some turnovers on Khalil Tate and that Arizona offense, then I think they'll be all right. They'll, they'll keep them in the game. But I think the defense will have to step up and make some plays if they want to stay with this Arizona team. Yeah, one guy I think to keep an eye on is going to be Mustafa Johnson because he's coming at Tate from his blind side, second in the conference in sacks, and I think the Buffs' best defensive lineman, undoubtedly. So, uh, I think he can. Be, he's going to be the game changer or the X factor for Colorado, while Tate is for Arizona. But anyway, that's enough football. Um, we'll we'll just have to wait and see how things unfold. Let's move on to the game and the team um, that we're going to be at their home opener on Saturday. The men's basketball team has an exhibition matchup against the Colorado School of Mines in Golden on Saturday at four o'clock. So. Everyone should definitely make sure to come out. But the topic of discussion I think is the most important to start with is how is their starting lineup going to look? Because that's what the exhibition is going to help them figure out. Obviously, they're not going to be playing McKinley and Evan and probably not Naaman as much because, you know, you want to give some of the younger guys an opportunity. But Tad Boyle in his tenure here in Boulder has been known to take some time to kind of figure out his starting five, move guys in and out, and try to figure out a rotation of about eight to ten guys that he's going to play on a nightly basis. That sounds about right. Eight to ten, yeah. usually. Usually Someone, it's it's closer to ten, but it, yeah. it kind of depends on if the freshmen are ready to go, which he's been a little bit critical of. So Yeah, so I'm going to give you my starting five. Chase uh, will give you his. I'm going to say McKinley Wright, obviously, is going to start at the one. One of the best point guards in the conference. I'd have Namit Wright at the two playing shooting guard. I think he adds some height that gives him an advantage at the two-guard position, and he's able to shoot from the outside, which should create some matchups. At the three, 
Small forward, I'd have Evan Batty. I think he's going to make a huge impact for this team this year. Um, the physical presence that they were missing down low. Power forward at the four guard, I would have Tyler Bay. I think he's ready to start this year. We saw him come off the bench a little bit more last year. And then at the five, after Dallas Walton's injury, I have Lucas Seward. But we could see some more Doncic depending on how things unfold early on. Does that sound about right? Um, I could definitely see it, especially if they want to go big. It kind of depends on the matchups that they have. That That's probably their bigger lineup for sure. I think if they go smaller, um, I think it could be – so obviously McKinley Wright will start the one. Um, at the two, I think could be Delion Brown and or Gat- Shane Gatling, and then you could also even throw in Deshaun Schwartz there. And then they go Naaman Wright at the three, and then Bay and Batty four five. Or if they want to go big, start Lucas Seward. Um, four five will be interesting because I th- I think they like. Batty as a big man, especially with Dallas Walton getting yeah, hurt. Yeah, he's he's physical for his size. Yeah, he's he's not the tallest guy, but he is one of the biggest guys on the team. So um, I think that they're going to end up playing him at either the four or the five. I think you have to start Tyler Bay at this point. Um, and then so that leaves basically two spots that can either go small, you go big, start Lucas Seward. Um but I think they're going to end up going small, at least against school minds. And I think it'll be Delion Brown because that's what they went with in the scrimmage for most of it. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised to see Shane Gatling starting as well. Yeah, I think, listen, I think logically it makes sense to potentially start both Gatling and Deshaun Schwartz. But from a purely skill set standpoint, I like Schwartz coming off the bench, especially with how good of a three-point shooter he is. Mm. You know what I mean? I think that's better suited to come off the bench, give you some tempo and some points to go with it. And I think the same can kind of be said for Shane Gatling. These are gunslingers. These are guys who, who like to shoot the basketball a lot. And I think... With, a, with McKinley, who's going to take a lot of shots, Evan, who's probably going to have a pretty big role. I think both Schwartz and Gatling are just better suited to come in with the second team because of, you know, how much they like to shoot yeah, the basketball. I, I tend to agree with you on that. I think they're, they're more of bench players, but Delion Brown is kind of the wild card because I think Tad really likes him defensively. I, I think I, yeah. he, he has the ability to shut down some of the better twos in the Pac-12, so... I think he's going to play a lot just because of his defensive ability. Yeah. But he's, I think he'll be started. But when, once they need scoring, they'll end up bringing in Sean Schwartz and Shane Gatling. But as we know, Tad likes to rotate that starting five, and it won't be the same for the whole entire year. It definitely won't be. And I was able to talk to Tad one-on-one, actually, um, last season. And he told me he really he likes Delion as a six-man because he likes the ability to, you know, mix and match and – balance out his lineup, if you will, with a bunch of scores and a more defensive-minded player. So I expect Delion Brown to see a lot of time at, you know, on the floor with the starters. I don't think he'll start, but I think he'll play a lot with the starters. And I think that's his best role because um, to win games in the Pac-12, as Tad Boyle always tells us, you, you need to play defense. And I completely agree with that sentiment, even though this team is going to be Known for their offensive firepower, at least this year. Well, yeah, we'll see. I was at that scrimmage. I wasn't very impressed. Obviously, Tad was uh, pretty critical after he went and watched the film as well. And as he should be. Yeah, the team they scored a lot of transition buckets, which is good, I guess, in a way. There, there was a lot of points scored, but the half court offense still doesn't look very good. 
it never really has looked that good under Tad Boyle. So that's something that they need to develop and then transition defense. Like it's good to see that there's all this scoring transit on, on the offense, but if you can't slow down teams in transition, you're going to have a lot of problems, especially once they get to pack 12 play. Oh, but th- those were two big things that I saw. Um, another one that Tad mentioned was uh, boxing out, which it's just too hard for me to see that in a scrimmage because offense and defense, but yeah, the team did not look good in their inter-squad scrimmage. I did hear some good things about how they looked against SMU in the closed-door scrimmage. So take take everything with a grain of salt. We'll know a little bit better against the mine, uh, School of Mines, even though they're probably going to put up 100 on them. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. But, you know, even though they're playing a team that's obviously a lot worse for them, it is still an opportunity to get out on the floor before the home opener um, nec- uh, a week from a week out the week after next. So I think it's good in that regard. One thing I'll be looking for, we have about a minute and a half left here. So we'll each give three things we're looking for and then send you off for, to go trick or treating or whatever you want to (laughs) do. But three things I'm looking for. I want to see how the perimeter defense plays. I think that's what killed them last year. I think they could have been may, maybe a stretch, but a top four team in the conference. If they had a better perimeter defense, they were given up like, 50-something points in the paint on a regular basis, and I don't think that can happen. Number two, rebounding. This is especially important considering that they don't have a true big man, right? With Dallas Walton out, you need to crash the boards, and you need, it needs to be a team effort. You know what I mean? You can't have one guy running down the court well. Two guys try to beat a DeAndre Ayton-type seven-footer for a rebound. So I think that it needs to be a group effort, and I, I think they need to win the rebound battle to win games. Number three, I, w- I want to see them cutting it loose from beyond the arc a little bit more. And I want to see them being a little bit more. Uh, this is going to be a hybrid. Shooting more from beyond the arc and being more aggressive in getting in the paint. That's something that I didn't see a lot last year. And, you know, you're going to turn the ball over inevitably some of the time. But I think that they just need to be a little bit more aggressive in getting to the basket, getting fouled, and getting to the free throw line and making teams respect their inside game. So those are the three things I'm looking for. For me, in it's kind of basic. I'm just going to give one thing and it kind of covers everything is who's going to step up on this team. There's a lot of guys that we like to talk about. A lot of guys that have talent. We know McKinley Wright is the guy for this team, but who's going to step up around them? Is that going to be the Juco transfer Shane Gatling? Is it going to be the sophomore Deshaun Schwartz, Deleon Brown in terms of guards? And then you also have big men like Lucas Seward, Evan Batty, Tyler Bay, who's going to step up and really compliment McKinley Wright and help him, especially scoring the basketball, because that looks like a problem other than transition. Other than in transition, they look like they have serious problems scoring the basketball in the half-court offense, and someone's going to have to step up and, and be a scorer around McKinley Wright, because he's not going to be able to do it every single night. So that's going to be the most interesting part for me, and I, I would like to see it be multiple guys, but if they can just get something out of Lucas Seward, I think that that could be huge because he's taken the step from lower classmen to upper classmen, and I think he can make the biggest difference with Dallas Walton being out. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I'm I'm just I'm just looking for someone who can step up and score points. Pretty much, I I definitely agree with you on that front, and I think that goes hand in hand with being a little bit more aggressive in terms of getting easier shots. But anyway. That is all the time we have for the Howell Stern Show, uh, Halloween edition of the Howell Stern Show here on Radio 1190, and we will talk to you later.